Charlie Gladstone here and welcome to my Mavericks podcast. In fact, welcome to episode 21, no less. Um, as befits a big birthday, uh, today involves one of my very dearest friends, a very old friend. This is Giles Andre. Giles, under his various nom de plume or alter egos, has created four phenomenally successful separate businesses and has sold literally, as he reveals in the podcast, tens of millions of books and hundreds of millions of greetings cards. I'm going to let him explain what those alter egos are in a moment. He also told me at the end um, of our conversation, which we didn't record, that he has recently published a version of a Winnie the Pooh story. He was approached a couple of years ago, I think, by the Disney Corporation and asked essentially to do what he wanted with one of those stories. So he was given, somewhat remarkably by the Disney Corporation, a bit of a poetic license. Anyway, we talk about his career and we talk about the dichotomy between being a creative and a businessman. We talk about Giles's extraordinarily nasty brush with cancer and about his nervous breakdowns and I think about a lot else. So without any further ado, here is Giles Andre. Uh, you've done so many things, most of them brilliantly successful in your professional life. So give me kind of minute-long pricey of the things that you've done and um, created. Okay, well, I guess it starts with um, Purple Ronnie, the sort of cartoon poet, which I created second year at uni, I think. It used to be a stage act, oddly, and then it grew into um, a line of greetings cards and uh, books and merchandise and so on. Um, and I did that for 20 years or so before I sold it. Who did you sell it to? I sold it to a company called Coolabye, who are a sort of specialist IP rights company, and the team there have bought... Mr. Men, Agatha Christie, various sort of other portfolios um, in various companies. So they were the right kind of people to buy it. Right. Uh, so I started with Purple Ronnie. Um, then I guess within two or three years, I'd started writing children's books, children's picture books, which actually, so the very first one was called Rumble in the Jungle, which was a collection of uh, animal poems, which grew out of Purple Ronnie, curiously, in that every... Yeah, we used to do a Purple Ronnie calendar, which had a theme. Um, you know, it might be sort of travel or sport or... I, I can't quite remember too many of the others. It was a long time ago, but I did <laughs> And one. there was lots of product. There was lots of product. Um, but we did one... I did one on animals, and I showed it to my publisher. And Purple Ronnie was quite sort of, um, I guess, teenage student humour. And he looked at it and he went, well, there's no farting and drinking and shagging and falling over so no one will buy this. You might as well make a children's book out of it. And I thought, yeah, well, I, I might as well. Did you have children at this stage? Uh, no, I didn't have children, but I've, I've always grown up. I've grown up in a very big family um, and have always been surrounded by, um, by children uh, and very old people and everyone in between. <laughs> um, so that book came out as Rumble in the Jungle, um, maybe perhaps three or four years after Purple Ronnie had started. Uh, and that started a career in writing children's books. And I've now... I, I always get asked when I talk to schools, actually, how many books have you written? And I, I don't actually know the answer, but it's probably around 50 or 60 or so children's right, books. Right, OK, well, no wonder you don't know the answer. I actually had no idea you'd done that many. Yeah, well, they're not very long. <laughs> and some of them have done really, really well, haven't they? Yeah, well, there's one in particular which... Um, 
I wrote nearly 20 years ago, actually, called Giraffes Can't Dance, which was, I think, what you probably call a bit of a sleeper in publishing terms to begin with. Nobody really paid much attention to it for five years. And then gradually we sort of got to realise that it was selling quite well. The Americans really took to it, which is unusual for me. Um, and I think we've probably, I think we probably sold about four million copies now. Um, My mouth has just dropped open <laughs> off camera. <laughs> wow. Uh, which is great. Um, How many would, a, would a, a book like um, The Gruffalo have sold? Oh, The Gruffalo comparison? will have probably sold 15 million, okay. I would have thought. But that's a real breakout. Yes. Actually, weirdly, Julia Donaldson and Axel, her illustrator, have their own. This is a true, a true fact, like most facts. They have their own bestseller charts. Um, they had to split their books off from everybody else's books because otherwise the top 10 would be dominated by Julia and Axel and nobody else would be in the top 10. So no one would really know what books to buy except for theirs. Really? Brilliant. Um, That's what they had to do with um, compilation albums and the charts. They had to create a separate chart because now this and now Oh, that. is that right? Yeah. yeah okay, well. Yeah. Yeah. Same for them. Yeah. Um, but the rest of us inhabit the other child. Yes. OK. <laughs> so, you, so you did that. You've, you've done, so you started the children's career. And then when did Edward Monkton come into it? Edward Monkton started about, probably about 15 years ago. So Purple Ronnie went through various sort of cycles. It was sort of big with young people, independent shops and students for the first five years or so. Perhaps tailed off a bit. Um, then I went into other merchandise like toiletries and things with Purple Ronnie. Um, and then it got taken on by Hallmark, which, you know, most people know is a, a very large um, global, well, American-based, but global publishing company. And they sold a great many cards. I think they've sold, I, I know they've sold over 100 million Purple Ronnie cards, pretty much all in the UK. Um, but in order to do that, you have to sort of tailor your creative output. So Purple Ronnie started as a quite iconoclastic um, style of writing. It was quite naughty, it was quite niche. Um, and by the end, if you've got to sell 10 million cards a year, by, by the very nature of that, you have to temper your output to appeal yes. to as many people as possible. In fact, it's almost the reverse of that. You have to temper it so as to not appeal, to not not appeal to as many people as possible, if you see what I mean. Yes. You, and so that kind of neuters a lot of it's the kind of original idea. It's kind of denominator approach. To, to an extent, you can still write nice things, but you, you just don't want to offend anyone. And you want to, you know, if you're doing a card for a grandchild, it's got to be able to be sent from either two grandparents or one grandparent if one has died or they're divorced. So, you, you end up being quite neutered, mm, um, mm. and it, that that's fine. Uh, and so Edward Monkton started as a reaction to that, um, to get back to doing work that I thought was properly funny, unusual, and interesting. And I didn't really mind how much it sold. In fact, originally, I, I'm not sure. I even I just think I wanted to draw them and didn't really have much of a plan about showing them to anyone. Um, and in the end, I did take them to a, a, a little boutique publisher, friend of mine. And he looked at them and he went, well, 
do you know, this might work for me because I'm thinking of downscaling quite substantially. And this could, <laughs> this could help. Um, well, in other words, I need to take on some really shit product. Well, I, I don't want to sell as much as I've been selling. I, he wanted more of a lifestyle business and less of a sort of money-making business. So uh, more, of, uh, yeah, more of an insult than a compliment, I think. But anyway, yeah. he, he took them on. And we, we both thought, well, nothing like as many people will buy these as bought Purple Ronnie, but those who do buy them will probably buy a, a handful. Um, and that's exactly what happened. And then it did become quite big within... Ebba Moncton became huge. I mean, weren't you the best-selling poet in Europe for a number of years running or something extraordinary oh, like that? well, uh, um, yes, I'm not sure that's particularly down to Edward Moncton and n n by no means all of Edward Moncton is verse. I think the best-selling thing publishers like to use because it's a good hook. And if you've sold... I've sold 10 million books, 150 million greetings cards... And so... With Edward Monkton? No, no, Purple Ronnie, Edward right, Monkton okay. and the kids. The kids' books have sold 8 million. No, I think the kids' books have sold 10 million books and Purple Ronnie about 3 million and Edward Monkton maybe a million or something. So it's much smaller, Edward okay. Um But for a time, I mean, the, for the people who don't know Edward Monkton, I mean, for a time it was pretty ubiquitous in, in gift shops and, and all the rest of it. It seemed to me not to be so much um, funny as, as kind of really incredibly human and gentle and warm and I mean I gather that there's one of them that is it the love monkey that's read at weddings oh a lovely endlessly. love story a lovely yeah. love story okay yeah. that's interesting you should use that word human because I think that completely sort of is at the base of everything I write it's trying to reach other people's humanness and get through the carapace. Yeah, I mean, I want to come to this. I want to, I, I want to talk about that. And actually, I've just brought that up. But I wanted to explain that. But then you started a brand called Happy Jackson. Oh, yeah. 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 And that's still going and doing well. That is. That's rather taken over. That's probably 95% of what I do at the moment. And that was... So Purple Ronnie I sold. Edward Monkton... Edward Monk, I'm not normally particularly precious as a writer. Um, I like writing and I like deriving my income from it. So you do what you've got to do. And I tend to do things that I like. Um, but Edward Monkton and Purple Ronnie were both sort of weird to begin with, to the extent that you really had to wait for the public to understand what it was before they started buying it. And then more of them started buying it. And so I'd done Purple Ronnie a long time ago. Edward Monkton, I, I stopped doing, which I don't normally do because I did a lot of it in the first five to ten, five, six, seven years. And I, there was a time when my publisher said, we need, you know, a dozen more designs or something. And I looked at what I'd done, and I'd done perhaps three or four hundred drawings. And I just, I thought, I haven't really got anything more right. to say that I can say any better than I've already said. So I, for the first time in my life, I just went, no, I can't do any more because I really like Edward Monkton and I don't want to just do a sort of rather worse version of one that yeah. I've already done. Yeah. There's only, you know, so much you can say really. Um, so I stopped doing that. So that it's still out there, but it doesn't sell anything like as well as it used to. Um, so I had a bit of time to do something else and I thought, well, I've done two things that started off very weird. Why don't I try and do something that actually takes advantage of all the assets that people, sensible people generally use when they want to create something um, that, that sells. And 
it so happened that my former creative director at Hallmark had just gone freelance, and she's an astonishing uh, designer, very intelligent, um, very, very good. And so I met up with her, and we decided to do something together that was more girly, more um, accessible, uh, and perhaps possibly more international. So we came up with a brand called Happy Jackson um, that sort of shares creative properties with the other two, but just is much easier to understand. It's, it's, it's a series of, of everyday products that use your kind of wit and character in very simple words with a very distinct colour palette. Is that yeah, how so you describe it? Yeah, so bright and shiny with nice, bold, punchy colours and fun patterns and just little fun slogans. So give me well, one of the probably one of the best-selling items is a is a bright, shiny, bright yellow pencil case, and it just says in black a black font, Penorgy in here tonight. Pencils welcome to. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, people like if you if you look up Penorgy on Instagram, there's like a flood of yellow. <laughs> right. <okay. laughs> we, we had no idea actually the extent to which people were using it to communicate until we. I was very late to social media and still don't really use it, but it is nice for something like that because it, Instagram, people who use Instagram are the, tend to, I mean, I know it's a very general, but they tend to be the sort of people who like big, bold, shiny, visual things. Well, Obviously, I think they're visual people for sure. Exactly. As opposed to, the, you know, Twitter, which is more sort of keen wordsmiths. Right, exactly. So it, there's a lot of um, Happy Jackson on Instagram and um, yeah, it's now, it's now what I do almost the whole time, but I think because it's become... And that, that's done very well. Yes, it has done. It has done well. Has it done better than anything else? Um, there was a, a sort of seam of two or three years with Purple Ronnie where, you know, when you've got a, 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 a sort of Goliath like Hallmark selling your stuff, it's hard not to sell a lot of things. Um, but it, Happy Jackson, I, I don't even really know the numbers, but... It's, it, it, does, it does almost as well as Purple Ronnie. So you've had, I mean, what what's always astonishes me about you is that you've had, albeit in roughly the same field, you've had four different successes, if you count the children's books, all 50 or 60 or however many there are of them <laughs> as one, and then Happy Jackson and Edward Monckton and Purple Ronnie. Have you just kind of gone through this without ever worrying about it? I mean, it, it's, very, it's very unusual to have a, a, yeah. a series of successful creative businesses, all of which are hits, I would have thought. Well, here's the weird thing. They're not all hits. You don't really know about the ones that aren't hits because they don't really happen. There was, there was a, strangely enough, the one thing I've done that I thought was going to be a surefire success that I was so excited about um, was a brand called World of Happy. Now, that was probably 10 years ago, eight to 10 years ago. And it happened completely, it came out of the blue. Uh, a BBC producer really liked Edward Monckton. And she came to me and said, I want to, they got some brief from the BBC was going through another sort of pile of shit like it does every few years. And the director general had, had decided they wanted to be more soft and approachable and lovely and family orientated. So there's a big sort of sweeping um, statement to make. But they, a lot of the producers were briefed to find really lovely stuff. And so right, okay. She Sounds good to me. Well, it sounds good to me because that's kind of my stock in trade as a writer. So she came to me and said, um, 
could we do a show like with the same sort of heart as Edward Monkton, but it needs to appeal to children as well as adults, and we're going to put it on CBBC. And I went, well, yeah, I'd love to. Um, what do you want? She said, we want 13 little animations. Um, but we need them, we need them written within the next four weeks and we need them produced within the next three months because they're going to be broadcast in four months or something. I mean, incredibly tight schedule. So I, I had this idea to call it World of Happy and it was basically animal stories, each one, hopefully with a real heart and a little, um, a little life lesson and the things that I find fundamentally important for families, basically. You know, love, respect, heart, warmth, vulnerability. Um, and I wrote them, and I'm, I shouldn't say this, but I was really, really pleased with them. And they went out on the BBC. They were, they were very short. They were like three minutes long. So I they remember couldn't, them, yeah. Right. They couldn't measure how well they did because I, I don't quite know how it works, but they were too short for their measuring devices. So we didn't know how many people had seen them. Um, then I think for the first time ever, there was a bidding war with publishers. Um, over who was going to publish this new BBC series by somebody who was already a reasonably well-known children's author. Um, and it was incredibly exciting, and various publishers would bake sort of cakes in the shape of the logo and send them to me, and all this sort of thing. I've never been treated like this before. In fact, you know, out of all these 60 books, I think I've had one launch party or something that was in a friend's flat. <laughs> so it doesn't normally happen no. to me, this. And... Um, Eventually, the, the auction was won by Egmont, who uh, made a very nice offer. And their initial print run, so an initial print run of an ordinary picture book, might be 2,000 copies. They printed 750,000 copies of these books, uh, put great big sort wow. of, made these big cardboard displays for all the retailers and everything. And after a few months, it became apparent that they were only going to sell about 750 period books. I mean, literally, hardly any at all. Millions of returns. Um, it was awful. I, I was completely thrown by it. Um, and it was the only thing I thought was a surefire success. And there's a lesson in that. So the, the, the sort of two things that, that come out for me from your career is that it is what you do is done with real heart. Now, I was never big fan of Purple Ronnie. I know it was hugely successful, but it, it, it was all, I'm, I'm incredibly puerile, but it, it was too puerile for me. <laughs> but I think Edward Monckton was, is, is the best example for me of what I think shines through in your work, which is a genuine interest in people and a sort of genuine interest in love and affection and warmth and all those things. I mean, would, would that be, is that at the kind of, is that the essence of a lot of your work? Yes, I think it is, in that um, when I talk to people, uh, particularly in sort of, you know, larger sort of social occasions, the one, the one thing I really find I have difficulty with is not having real conversations, not properly reaching the authenticity or the spontaneity of someone. And as adults, we're, we're sort of... I don't know, I don't know why it happens, but we basically wear these suits of armour, basically, and have terribly sort of formulaic 
conversations the whole time. And I find that just a sort of terrible waste of, of being human. It's fine, we all do it. And I've been told actually by my therapist um, that I must allow people to have these formulaic conversations because that's where they feel comfortable. That's fine. It's not really where I feel particularly comfortable. Um, I, feel, I feel comfortable when you get inside people and when you find their humanness and spontaneity and what drives them, um, where their love is, where their heart is. It sounds all very sort so, of So but... two questions. First is, do you think that, um, I mean, do you, uh, since your therapist told you not to do it, have you stopped trying to penetrate <laughs> people's <laughs> to, to souls? Extent, or... I, know when people, I know when it makes people feel uncomfortable. I've, I have had people literally get up and walk away from sitting next to me at dinner. What, instance. when you're trying to ask them what their greatest fear is and they just want to talk about their salary? That, that, that wasn't actually the very specific question. But yes, that sort of thing, yeah. exactly. No, it's fine, and I don't mean to make too much of it, but the, a more direct way of answering your question is to say, I, I, like, I like to have authentic communication with people. I, I like to... I like... Playfulness is what I love. Okay, I like so it when this, people are this, open and playful and yeah. joyful and then you get the real proper person. Then this, you're being human together. This plays precisely to my second question, which is having known you, you know, since long before you had children and we both had children, and is that it struck me that you are the most interested person that I almost know in, in children. And, well, you know, you're, you're, you're always kind of... Uh, getting to know them, knowing they're trying to find their quirks, their nicknames, the things they find funny. Is that, do you think, because you, that children are more willing to give that stuff? Well, what's interesting about that is I wouldn't say they're more willing to give that stuff. They haven't yet hardened their carapaces, so they are naturally much more authentic. And children, of course, are much more playful. And we lose our playfulness as we grow up, or some of us do. Um, and they're just much more fun. They're more interesting. They're more open and vulnerable. They're less predictable. Um, I sometimes think there's something a bit wrong with me because I like to hang out with my children more than any of my friends. <laughs> well, we're both uh, very lucky. Like that. I like to hang the, out with your children too. Maybe I should, maybe I should just, you know, um, just spend a little bit more time with adults talking about cars and... Um, salaries. Mortgages and salaries and things. <laughs> yeah, they... they well, they don't have any of that stuff to talk about. They've just got more interesting things to talk about. And of course, I know the adult world now better than I know the children's world because I'm an adult. Some would probably disagree with that statement. When you're doing this work, the Edward Monkson work, for example, do you think you probably are riff getting your joy that informs the work from essentially riffing off children more than adults then? No, because a lot of them deal with adult themes, but it's... I think what joins me to children and what joins me to people who enjoy my work is probably this word playfulness. And so Edward Monckton, um, at its best, and it's not all, all at its best, obviously, I think is riffing off the playfulness that we can find, often in serious situations. Mm, mm. So another thing which is I suspect unusual is that you're fundamentally a creative person I mean you read English literature at university you know you're very well you're very well educated you're good with words 
you're also a great illustrator. You've got a very, you've had a very successful career. But what's unusual is that you seem to also be a very good business person. And I think, you know, you, you've obviously got a keen business eye and have made a great financial success. I mean, it's all very well making these beautiful books, and and as you say, you know, world of happy failed and. and I would. I wonder if they, you know, if if that's something that you've learned, or were you just fundamentally good at it when you started out? Were you? Did you understand the value of what you were doing? I think it's an interesting question. Um, no, Purple Ronnie was the first thing I did, and I I did probably the the most businessy thing I've ever done was, was starting that. It started strangely as a stage act, but I lived a few doors down from a printing press in Oxford when I was at uni. Um, and I teamed up with a friend and we got, we got them to print a few, a hundred or so of eight different designs or something. But that was no different really to printing invitations or change of address cards or something. It just so happened to be things that you could sell. And we sold them in local shops in Oxford, six or seven local shops, and made enough to buy a couple of kebabs each a week. And that was it. I thought that was pretty much going to be it. Um, and then a friend of mine introduced me. I, we did send them to publishers, but everyone rejected them until a friend of mine introduced me to a publisher who just moved in a couple of doors away from their parents. So that's how Purple Ronnie was first published properly. But were your antennae out at that point? I mean, I, I, I think that in my business career, I've been very, very good at creating things and not really so good at thinking about how to make money from them. Yeah. And, and you, you, you've, you've, in many ways, have been good, it seems to me, at both parts of that. Do you think your antennae were out when you first met that publisher and you thought, I'm, I need to make X pounds per... No, no, because I actually... They were already being published when I got my first proper job, which was in an advertising agency. Well, I say job. I was a trainee account executive in an ad agency. And that career was only um, truncated because I, I got very ill. But um, yes, what, so there are probably two things here about business. Firstly, I do like writing things that a lot of people enjoy. I think probably most creatives, but by no means all, would probably agree with that statement. It's nice for lots of people to enjoy what you do. Um, and also, the business of what I do is not hard. Um, it's just like if you write a book, you get a publisher, hopefully, and you get an agent or a lawyer to do a contract, which is a fairly standard template of a contract. Um, and that's what I do. But as well as having a book publisher, like an author would, I have a card publisher, a toiletries publisher. I, I think you're completely under... I, I, I don't think you're right. I think you're completely underestimating the skill that you brought to that because, I mean, a lot of people can get a book published, but it's both the understanding of that the content has to be commercial and that there are spin-offs that you seem to have brought to it. Yeah. Well, I suppose... Yeah, I don't really know how to answer that. I suppose no, everybody no, does I mean, what I, they... I, just, I, think, I think I ask because a lot of people I know that, that listen to this podcast are, are, are you know, in creative businesses and they, they, most of them that I, I know of are probably better at the creative bit than the money bit. And I just think it's, it's quite unusual to have an individual who is good at both those yeah. sides. And I, 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 I'm just challenging you as to whether you are better at business perhaps than you realise. Maybe it just comes instinctively, I don't know. Well, when I look at people, you know, you're a good example. Most creative companies need 
staff, marketing, distribution, a shop, um, uh, investors often, finance. I don't need any of that. It, it is, you're being very kind, but I do think what I do is very simple. I, I create content from my head and my pen that happily lots of people like. I've, I find somebody who makes, say, toiletries um, and have a fairly standard contract template with them whereby they pay me royalties like they would pay an author royalties. And off they go and do all the hard bit. That's the hard bit. I don't need investors. I don't need, I don't really need no, anything. Okay. Although having said that, I said don't need anything. Happy Jackson, obviously, I'm in a 50-50 partnership with a brilliant designer. So in that sense, I needed someone else. But that's, otherwise, it's just me and a pen and a few nice people who make nice things and know how yes. to sell them. Okay, well, I mean, I suspect you're slightly being slightly reductive, but I, but I, um, but no, I mean, I, I hear you. So you, you mentioned there that you got ill and, and you, you've had, you know, some really profoundly unpleasant things happen to you along the way. So I don't want the listeners to think this has all been easy because you had cancer as a very young man. Yeah. Um, and that was terrible. Yes. Um, and recovered and, you know, um, praise the Lord. Um, and you also had a major breakdown, what, six or seven years ago, mm. mental breakdown. Yeah. Um, yeah, a bit, bit longer ago than that, but yes. So talk me through that. The cancer or the, or the well, mental well, uh, well, but Well, both of them. Well, okay. The cancer was, um, was a complete surprise. It was odd. I got it in my last year at Oxford. It was called Hodgkin's disease, um, which is actually certainly one of the more curable forms of cancer. Um, but it, the problem was that it was misdiagnosed very badly to begin with. So it began with a lump in my neck and... Um, I lost a lot of weight and was very tired and wasn't eating properly and couldn't have an, I didn't have an appetite. Um, and I, because there was a lump in my neck, I went to an ENT specialist uh, who decided that I'd grown a gill um, and sort of stopped there. No one has ever, ever grown a gill in the history of mankind. Right. So this guy thought, this is going to be my thing. I'm going to be the discoverer of the... F my friends would call me the fish man. Um, very nice nickname. <laughs> I can <laughs> smile about it now. It, it was astonishing. But and he stopped there and he would, he would, every time I'd go and see him, he'd bring a new bunch of students and go, so guess what's wrong with this guy? And they'd go, mm, cancer. And he'd go, no, no, it's a gill. Um, and I kept hearing stories from other people who said, well, that sounds very like what my friend or my uncle had called Hodgkin's disease, which is a cancer of the lymph system. And I would discuss this with the guy and he went, well, look, okay, let's just do a biopsy then. And, you know, I'll show you that it's a gill, basically. And he did a biopsy and, and it, was, it was cancer. I mean, it's almost... It, it was astonishing. So he got it quite late and I was treated in Oxford with, with chemotherapy. So I had my first chemotherapy session the morning of my first finals exam. Very good way to get out of finals, but I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but actually, it did me a favour. <laughs> I hadn't read, hadn't read quite enough books by that stage. But I was very. Well, you've poorly. been very ill, to be I fair. Was, yeah. And you've been concentrating on growing your gills. <laughs> That's true. One, only one. One. Okay. Um, and so I had a few months. Can't quite remember how many of of chemo. Um, and then, hooray! All clear and everything. He said, off I went to join this advertising agency. Actually, and then quite by chance. 
my mother happened to run into an oncologist and she was telling him this strange story of her son who somebody thought had grown a gill and it turned out to be cancer. And he went, well, that's, you know, never happened before. It sounds odd. And anyway, why don't you just send him along to me for, a, you know, just a final checkup and everything. And rather reluctantly, I went and he, he went, I'm really sorry, you're completely riddled with it. Um, so not only was it badly misdiagnosed, but it was treated and I was given the all clear. I clearly wasn't all clear. It had gone to stage three, which means it had spread to a lot of other places. It was all gone from my neck through my abdomen, down my torso and everything. So I then had to have a very experimental course of chemo that was so toxic that I had to be fully anaesthetised every two weeks because you couldn't tolerate it conscious. Um, and the result of that was that I'd come around and I'd, various other drugs I was on meant that I didn't remember anything, including my family's names or anything, for two or three days after each session. And they were every two weeks for a number of months. I can't remember how long. And that wasn't nice at all. Um, and then it, mainly, it worked on most areas except for down in the bottom of my abdomen. So I then had to have a lot of radiotherapy subsequently. And in the end, it did all work, and I was well. But and by always... this stage, you were about 24? Yes, I would think 23 or 24. I gave up the job in advertising because obviously you can't be on that level of chemo and work. So I had maybe a year of being very weak, and, um, and actually then it was probably when I... I mean, I was writing a lot of Purple Ronnie. I took up the guitar, I taught myself how to play the guitar, which I still adore, as you know. Um, that was a brilliant solace, actually, and still is. Um, but it probably consolidated in my mind that I didn't really want to spend my life doing something I didn't massively enjoy, which at the time was advertising. Uh, the agency were brilliant. They said, I, I, I said, look, I've got to leave and take some time off to have chemo and radio, as it turned out. Um, so I don't think I want to come back, so can I resign? And they went, no, you can do whatever you like. We'll keep you on your salary, modest as it was, £10,000 a year. Um, come back when you're better and tell us you don't want to work here or that you do want to work here. And so I went back and said, thank you, but I don't want to work here. And they went, thank you, I'm afraid we've got to stop your salary. And I went, yes, I think that's reasonable. And then I went to work for actually the, the company that was publishing Purple Ronnie as their as their sort of creative um, person. It was a very small company. So uh, there, was no, there is an element of destiny in this. And, and then um, much later in life, you had a, a, a really significant mental breakdown, yes. which um, you wrote very eloquently about in The Times. Is that right? If people want to look up that article, that was in The Times. Yeah, rather annoyingly, it's, um, it, when, when it went, it was in the, you know, the paper, pub, you know, published paper version, then obviously online. And you could access it for some time without an account. Now you have to have an account with the Times to access it, which is right. rather annoying. I did a similar one in the Daily Mail a year or two later, so that's still online. Okay, so talk me through what happened there. I mean, everything was, was apparently going swimmingly. You were about to buy a lovely house in the countryside. Yeah. Um, and suddenly things went badly pear-shaped. Yes, I... I don't really know why it happened, because I'd sold Purple Ronnie the previous year, or perhaps that year. And so finally, I felt, 
reasonably liberated financially, in that the problem with only earning money off your wits and having four children um, is that you need a certain amount of money, you know, to get by, obviously. So although I was, uh, had been earning that for some years, I was always terribly conscious that that wouldn't and would be very unlikely to last forever. So finally, I got a pot of money. I just started feeling weird. And um, the, the, you know, the stock market crash happened. I'd, I'd put most of the money into the markets very shortly beforehand. So I felt very let down by the grown-ups, if you like. Finally, I sort of felt secure. And then that rug was sort of whipped from under my feet. Um, it actually turned out sort of all right in the end. Um, but there was, there was a bit of that and perhaps feeling a bit, I, I, I don't quite know what it was, but I could feel myself getting a bit more tightly wound and I didn't know why and I didn't know what was happening. And this had, you'd never felt like this before? No, I'd always felt, you know, low-level anxiety sort of stuff, like, like a lot of people. There's nothing unusual about that. Um, but I literally crashed between one second and the next second. My wife had been away, she came home one morning and I just collapsed and, and couldn't really talk, sort of hysterically sobbing, uh, a complete sort of mess. It was a total implosion and very, I felt it building up, but the moment, you know, it was 10.25 a.m. on a Sunday morning, I know exactly when it happened. And it was, I just broke. And do you, do, you, do you credit it, credit isn't the right word, but to the fact that the, the obstacle that you'd been working to try and remove had been removed to any extent? I mean, you implied that, or did I read you wrong? No, well, what, what, what I was trying to say was that my main fear in life had been removed. Yes. And then, then the grown-ups slightly um, messed that up. It, you know, the city people. I say that as if, I mean, it, no, I, I, it's what you would yeah. call a first world problem, obviously. But I felt that that felt odd for my security to, to have been compromised by somebody else. I, I suppose beforehand, if it was ever compromised, I, I would feel solely responsible for it. Uh, this time, not so. But I don't think I'd put it down entirely to that. It was also, as you mentioned, the fact that we'd fell, fallen in love with a house in the country, decided very quickly to move out of London. And I know that I'm terrible when I pull up my anchors and drift. Some people thrive off it, and I admire them enormously. I don't, I need to know where my anchor is bedded, and it needs to be bedded in rock. And so when I pull it up and drift, I get the fear. That's very interesting, because it, it, it strikes me that um, you've married someone, um, I mean, your wife is someone who is, is almost the opposite. I mean, she's a sort of wanderer, and. I mean, you're, you're the most um, tidy, untidy couple that I've, <laughs> I've ever come across. I mean, you're very tidy. Yes. And Victoria is not so tidy. So there. I admire the way she lives her life. I think it's incredible. Um, uh, we have very much the same values, but we approach things in different ways, uh, which is perhaps one of the reasons why it works. And was she, was she completely astonished by this or did she see it coming this breakdown i don't think she saw it coming she'd been away on a shoot for a week or 10 days and came back and her husband broke um it was a surprise to all of us and none of us really knew what it was i didn't really know about depression you, you, i mean you know a bit about it but you until you've had it or, or somebody close to you has had it i think you 
think that it's, you know, basically like feeling a bit depressed or very depressed. It's nothing like it. It's the most misleading term. It was, they used to call it a, a, a nervous breakdown, which is much closer to the truth. Mm. And yeah. to, to, how long does it take you to get through that episode, if episode's the right word? Um, to start, to, to begin to see little chinks of light out the other side, six, nine, six to nine months probably. It's very, very dark. You didn't suddenly wake up one day and feel better like you might after... No, no, not at all. It's gradual, but you suddenly... Nothing can move you in a good way at all. And then some little thing will happen that makes you think, God, was that a little twink of joy that I just felt? And it's gradual and it's remarkable regaining that facility to experience joy. And all the way through this, which you alluded to earlier, you've played the guitar all the <laughs> way through your career and you made an album last year really just for yourself. But is, is that, is that, does that remain one of your big joys? You say just for myself. I think I've sold four copies. No, well, I bought one. Let, let, <laughs> bless you. <laughs> but I mean, you always said that that was, I think there was a, a, almost a, a, a deliberate thing to say, look, guys, I'm not trying to... Yeah, it was a real... It's, I just, I've just made it because I love it. Yeah, and which... I, I, in a way, I, I suppose I feel I have to alert people to that because people are used to thinking that everything I do that is creative output is, is part of my job or a commercial exercise. So this really wasn't... And that's what was such fun about it, doing it simply to enjoy it and with absolutely no eye at all on, oh, God, are people going to like this song or not and will they buy it or not? Thanks so much. What, what, one final question. What's your... What's your recommendation? What's the best thing you've heard or, or best things you've heard or read recently or, or seen? What have you been really enjoying? Okay, it's, it's probably music, but for me, you know, lyrics are the most important thing. Obviously, if they're lifted by an incredible melody, it's, it's sensational. Um, so, well, I'm seeing Gretchen Peters tonight, who I love. Best song by Gretchen Peters? Where, where should people oh, start? God. Okay, listen to Guadalupe. It's, it's actually by Tom Russell, but she does the most sensational cover of it with Tom Russell. So Guadalupe by Gretchen Peters and Tom Russell would be my recommendation today. Well, thank you very, very much indeed to Giles for that, for doing my 21st birthday edition. And thank you very much indeed to you for listening. Uh, it really means a great deal to me. As I've often said, I didn't start this for anything more than a hobby, and it's so gratifying that tens of thousands of you have listened to it. I'm very grateful. I'm going to carry on doing it for a hobby. We don't have any sponsors or anything like that, but I should say at this point that Giles has agreed to speak at next year's Good Life Experience, and so I'm very excited by that and very grateful for that. Thanks very much to my friend, Jim Friend, for editing this. And I thought that as we talked a bit about music at the end, it would be nice to play out with some. This is by Gretchen Peters, who Giles mentioned. And this is Guadeloupe featuring Tom Russell, who I think in fact wrote the song. It's really rather lovely. Thanks very much. Here is Gretchen Peters. Bye. There are ghosts out in the rain tonight High up in those ancient trees And I have given up without a fight 
Another blind fool on her knees And all the gods that I've abandoned Begin to speak in simple tongues And suddenly I've come to know There are no roads left to run Now it's the hour of dogs a-barking That's what the old ones used to say It's first light or it's sundown For the children cease their play When the mountains glow like mission wine Or turn gray like a Spanish Rome Ten thousand eyes will stop to worship Turn away and head for home She is reaching out her arms tonight And yes, my poverty is real I pray roses sure rain down again From Guadalupe I am most in need of hope